everyone, and welcome back to ePROcast. I'm your host, The Big E, and this is part two of the conversation I had with Ross Aitken, the Rugby World Cup Cities and Venues Director at World Rugby. This podcast is available on all major platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Cast, and many more. In this part, you'll find out how a day of life as a stadium operations specialist looks like. We also talked about trends in stadiums area of the business and touched a bit the subject of smart stadiums and why organizations like Real Madrid, Las Vegas Raiders, and others are putting a lot of their eggs in this basket. Hope you get a lot of value out of this chat. To make it even more fun, leave a review with your top three most favorite episodes so far. Also, share this episode with your friends who you think will benefit from it. Now relax and enjoy. And uh, Russ, to give a little bit more context and value to the listeners. So pre-tournament, it's all about, you know, setting the strategy, executing, you know, making all these things when it comes to stadiums, venues, and so on. When it comes to the game day, what is your routine as someone who aspires to get into the industry, into this area of the sports business, like how a game day looks for Ross? Or how did it look for Ross in Japan? Yeah, so I am... My rule, I didn't actually have a, I guess, a, a match day rule. Yeah, my, my rule was very heavily involved in the build-up to the matches. But when you get to match day, you know, I guess, luckily, as long as everything is in place and everything's going according to plan, then I don't get involved in match day. I'm there. I, I went to a few venues just to make sure certain things were going the way we needed them to go. We had a couple of small challenges, and I wanted to make sure that if, if there were any issues, I was there to help support the, the solution. But... But really, the match days for me were quite easy. I was able just to just stand back and, and watch as everything went ahead. We had a few small challenges. And I remember we had a, we had a small power issue at Tokyo Stadium during the during the Wales, uh, I think it was Wales-Australia match. Uh, and we had, to, we had to cut some of the lights, had to turn off some of the floodlights, which was noticeable, but not very noticeable. The match referee and, and I guess everybody in the stadium noticed it, but with the, it didn't cause any problems. The, the light level in the venue didn't change significantly at all. And so we were fortunate that we were able to proceed with the match. That was a small, small issue that I happened to be in the right place at the right time to support the decision to turn the generator off and, and turn the lights off in that particular part of the stadium. And yeah, small issues, you're there just to, to support really, but we've got match day staff in World Rugby Commissioner who's, who's responsible for the delivery of every match and we've got a number of, a number of staff there on match day but my role if I'm going along is to, to be there just to support you know our staff like the match commissioner to help make decisions and, and be there if, if they need to, to run any questions by me so yeah match days for me are, are not necessarily as stressful as those that have got a match day role. Right but when it comes to and now we'll make a transition to the trends in the stadium business culture stadium management where do you see all this going? Because we see a lot of, as I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of organizations are rebuilding their stadiums or building new stadiums. Why is this trend going on? And why the notion of smart stadium is headlining everywhere right now? We saw the new Tottenham Stadium, uh, which is a great venue. Then Real Madrid is rebuilding their stadium and of course, in the US, we can talk about SoFi Stadium and the Allegiant Stadium in, in Las Vegas, where the Oakland Raiders are going to play. 
So, I mean, not Oakland, but <laughs> Las Vegas Raiders now. And even smaller clubs like MLS teams, like Austin FC or even USL second division team. Like why this is such a hot topic going on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. You know, so, um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in smart stadiums. And my role, I guess, is more the operation of a stadium as opposed to the, the actual operation of, of day-to-day stadiums and the management and running of day-to-day stadiums. We very much bump into a venue for a short period of time and bump out. So in our events, we are yeah, very much in the hands of the, the organising committee and, the, and the, the venues as to what technology is in those venues. We think about technology in the stadiums. We are now... You know, I guess pushing for more spectator Wi-Fi and that's something that has been very difficult to achieve in lots of stadiums but yeah and the retrofitting of stadiums having to you know try and upgrade existing stadiums can be very challenging trying to redo all of the, the cabling and the networks etc um, but you see that happening I think Aviva not Aviva um, Croke Park in Ireland they've retrofitted that venue and, and that's now one of the you know smarter venues now um, over there I recently you know watched a video on Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium and it's just Phenomenal. You know, I guess if I was to, to give my opinion, it's it's probably a lot around fan engagement. You know how to improve the experience for the fan. You know at the end of the day, you know they're the ones coming in and spending their money, and you know they're a huge stakeholder in sport. And you know we have to start. Don't say start, but we have to continue to keep the fans at the at the forefront and and make sure that their needs and and, and demands are being are being um, listened to in action. Whether the spectator Wi-Fi and being able to. You know, order food and beverage from your phone. Uh, I know that the new Tottenham Stadium, you know, that whole network's all connected now and you can even go on and find out where the queues are the shortest and what concessions have the product or the uh, or the beverage that you're looking for to purchase. And yeah, from a stadium perspective, you know, that can only be a good thing as well. Shorter queues, people actually taking less time to decide what they want because they've gone to that particular concession for that reason and, you know, less waste, more sales. You know, that's definitely a worthwhile investment in the long run, I imagine. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in the economics of it. I don't know the amount of money that Tottenham invested in their smart stadium infrastructure, but I imagine it's very significant. Uh, it's, a, it's a trend because it's, um, yeah, it's new, it's exciting. There's some you know, really cool stuff going on these stadiums. And I think by connecting everything together on, on the one network, it's a much easier stadium to operate. You can identify much better efficiencies. And as I was saying there, the fan experience can be really increased significantly. And that's something that we want to do in rugby, in Rugby World Cup. But as I said, it's the challenge is if the venue doesn't have the infrastructure, trying to get apps and, and link up with the concessions so that you can order food and beverage and have it delivered to your seat, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds because the infrastructure required to make that happen is a very difficult thing. And yeah, an organising committee, you know, whether it's France 2023, Japan 2019, they don't have the money to invest or that I guess the power to insist that a venue installs that type of infrastructure. That's that's very much if the venue has that infrastructure, we would utilize it and ask to, to utilize it. We can't demand that. It's far too expensive at this stage and it's, it's still far too rare to be a requirement. But yeah, that's the way it's going. And yeah, there's some stadiums are, are leading the way. Tottenham in the UK is definitely leading the way. And you mentioned some of the, the venues in the States, they are there's going to be quite a lot of competition, I think, when everybody's trying to improve constantly improve and, and be better than the, the United Stadium. So, yeah, it's an exciting space to watch, definitely. When it comes to all 12 stadiums in Japan, and not only, maybe you saw some other stadiums of other sports, but first out of those 12, which you think was the most innovative stadium 
And if you also were there, because Japan is also known for their really engaging momentum in baseball and stuff like this, or if you saw other stadiums, not rugby particular, that are using a lot of innovation in order to increase that fan engagement, in order to provide more food and beverage options, and you know, utilizing or if we can call utilize the venue as much as possible out of 365 days a year. Sure, sure. Well, the, the answer to that is the Sapporo Dome. The Sapporo Dome in Hokkaido was the most professional of the venues that we used in Japan. Um, it's also the venue we had for the shortest amount of time because it's um, not only a soccer stadium, it's a, it's a professional baseball stadium. Baseball is the national sport in Japan. And yeah, it's a bit like, I guess, you know, we used Manchester City in uh, Manchester City Stadium, the Etihad Stadium in 2015 for the Rugby World Cup. We were, we were only able to have it for such a short period of time. And it's because they've got an existing user that uses the venue regularly. In Japan, baseball being the number one sport, we, you know, we were only able to get the Sapporo Dome for a two-week period. So we were only able to really have it, bump into it, get it ready for World Cup, play a weekend of matches and then, and then bump out in a short space of time. That was the most professional venue and the most innovative venue. And it's because they have the money. The owners of that venue, the Sapporo, the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters, the team, They've got money, they're a very professional outfit, and they were investing in that venue. And it, it made sense for them to invest and keep it to as high a standard as possible. In some of the other parts of the country and some of the other stadiums we used, they were not innovative at all. You know, they were a little bit behind the times, you might say. And that's, I guess, the demand. You know, we had um, Shizuoka Stadium in Kopa, which was just in the coast from Tokyo. That was a 50,000 seat stadium that was built in 2002 for the FIFA World Cup. But it regularly operates with about, I think, 8,000 8, spectators. So it's not used well enough or heavily enough to warrant having such a big capacity stadium. And that's why that venue can't really afford to innovate. It can't really afford to invest and keep it you know, keep it as up to date as maybe some of the other stadiums were. And that's a challenge they've got moving forward. And that's, and that's where, I guess, for Rugby World Cup, we're a very, a very good investment, I think, from an economic impact perspective. We don't demand that venues are built. We don't ask that cities build new venues for the sport. We use existing venues and, and we're very fortunate that we're going to countries that have hosted an Olympics, uh, a FIFA World Cup before, because we can use those existing venues again. But I guess what's quite good is we can come in, we can help set the venue up and, and make it user-friendly for the groups that we need to use it for. And then we can bump out and leave without any real infrastructure and, and uh, investment in that stadium. Obviously, we need certain things to bring it up to a, the standard of a, an international event at that time of in that year, but um, but it's, it's not not significant in the grand scheme of things, I think, and that's where our property is quite attractive. But yeah, innovation in Japan, there was some very cool things happening in Tokyo, don't get me wrong, but the venues were very basic. Trying to get some spectator Wi-Fi in there it was a real challenge in some places, and we were able to do that in most places. The other challenge that we've gotten, or we had in Japan, in rugby in particular, was food and beverage. You can bring food and beverage into the venue in Japan normally. Oh, wow. Really? So, yeah. So, they don't really capitalize on the sale of food and beverage in those venues. You, you know, so for Rugby World Cup, we, of course, we have, a, we have a clean venue. We have, you know, you're not allowed to get food and beverage inside. You know, you need to purchase anything that you consume inside the venue. But setting up uh, temporary concessions for food and beverage, temporary merchandise stalls, all that stuff was a real challenge. And, you know, there's a lot of work went into making that venue suitable to host because, yeah, when you're used to turning up at the gate with a crate of beer and walking in, you know, and, and you think got well, 72,000 people coming to a stadium and they expect to be able to, to purchase 
you know, food and beverage inside the stadium. You need to make sure that the facilities are there to facilitate that. And yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge that we had in Japan was making sure that we had enough beer. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, taking all this experience, you know, all the challenges, all the you know, failures that you've faced in Japan, taking them into the future in 2013, in 2023, <laughs> sorry. How do you see all this going and how do you think, because there are a lot of, in France, there are a lot of stadiums there and trying to innovate more and more. We saw the stadium of Olympique Lyon, if I'm not mistaken, in football being very, if I'm not mistaken, even the most innovative stadium in Europe at one point. That's, yeah, it may well be. I, I must admit, I don't know yet. We've not really had a chance to go and assess the venues as well as we want to. Um, we've selected our nine venues for the tournament. The, the Lyon venues is part of our nine, one of our nine venues. And we've been there once as part of the, the venue selection and just to confirm, you know, I guess from a broad perspective what was needed and, and where we need potentially some temporary overlay or, you know, initial space allocations. But because of this current uh, COVID pandemic, we haven't been able to actually get out to the venues again to do a proper assessment of what's there. We've got no concerns about the French venues. The majority of them either hosted Euro 2016 or FIFA Women's World Cup 2019 last year. So we're quite confident that the venues we've got there are, are going to be of a very high standard. And I, I, I probably the challenge we're going to face is, you know, if we've got venues like Lyon, as you say, that that's very innovative and maybe delivers to a certain level on a number of fan engagement areas, it's making sure that we can get the other venues up to that level, perhaps, and that might be a challenge that we face. But yeah, that's something that we will hopefully be able to work through later in this year once we get a chance to uh, to visit them. What do you think of the locals when they see that you know World Rugby picks? a soccer stadium, football stadium over rugby profiled stadiums when it comes to Rugby World Cup. How do you communicate that to the audience that, look, this is a better choice or, you know, stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, I can understand why people are upset. I mean, we had an issue in, in Leicester in uh, 2015 as well, where we went with uh, Leicester City Football Stadium instead of the Leicester Tigers rugby venue. There's a few factors that we look at. Obviously, capacities is one. If we're wanting to bring our tournament to the host country, then we want to host it in as big stadiums as possible because we want as many people in the stadium watching the tournament as possible. That's obviously a factor. Another factor as well is making sure that we're able actually to deliver the sport. A rugby pitch doesn't really fit into a football pitch. So we need to make sure that there's enough space to extend extend the pitch and, and make it safe for the players. A rugby pitch, a number of different, or we've got a few different dimensions, pitch dimensions that we can utilise. We've got optimal size and minimal size. And yeah, inevitably, we have to use some of the smaller dimensions for some of the smaller football venues. But the most important thing when it comes to the delivery of the sport is player welfare. So making sure that the, this, the, the venue is safe, the pitch is safe, uh, and, and comply with our laws and regulations. That's the priority. So sometimes you find that football venues can accommodate that better than some of the, the club rugby venues as well. You know, some of them are operating with quite small safety areas and, and that's a challenge for sport. But yeah, from a Rugby World Cup perspective, we communicate that by what's the best venue to get the most out of, out of this tournament. And you know, going to France, the most recent you know venues that were used in Euros and FIFA World Cup there, they're the venues that would be most suitable to host Rugby World Cup from both an innovation and fan engagement piece, but, but you know, also for capacity issues and, and the playing enclosures that we're able to deliver. Right. Ross, and this question is more about providing true value to the listeners, because 
sharing your experience is awesome. You know, you've been through a lot and a lot of pleasant experiences. But from your point of view, what is the crucial skill set or what are you know the skills required uh, and mandatory maybe and which ones someone could work on in order to increase their chances to get into the industry and also specifically if they love stadiums and they want to get into the stadium area you know of the sports business what's really important when it comes to this specific area oh, difficult question <laughs> difficult question to answer um, it's difficult to really say what skills are important. I think communication skills are important. I work with a, a number of different stakeholders and you know maintain a number of different relationships. And I think being able to communicate with your counterparts is extremely important. And I'm still learning. I think the experience of Japan was really important. You know, communicating and uh, managing relationships with a different culture. You know, it was different. And I think there was quite a few of us that, that struggled initially in how we interacted with our Japanese counterparts and yeah I'm learning all the time in that space and and yeah I'll continue to learn and improve but communication is certainly very important I think when if you're looking to get into the sports sector you know you, whether you're studying or not it's, it's get, trying to get experience and I know you know lots of people say that to you know say that to me when I was younger if you want to get a job you know you need to have experience you didn't get the job because the other person had more experience how do you get experience it's, it's the same, you know, chicken and egg scenario. But, you know, if it's volunteering at your local sports club, volunteering with, you know, your local council. I started as a volunteer when I was at university and then started getting paid to do sports coaching programs. That was how I started and got involved in it. And I was also fortunate because of my involvement in sport. I had relationships in sport as well, which, which helped. But yeah, from my perspective, getting into the stadium space, I don't actually have any real experience in that, actually getting into a, and operating a stadium. Um, I would imagine that there are a number of skills that would be transferable from a number of different roles into that space. But if you've got an interest for it, you know, then go down to your local stadium, go down to your local club and you know, see if there are any opportunities to shadow, to get some kind of work experience, you know, to volunteer at the club and just start to get involved. And it's amazing how, you know, I, certainly I've found that the more people you speak to, and, and hopefully you're finding this as well, huge with, with this podcast that you're doing, you know, the more people you speak to, the more things you learn and, and the more opportunities, I guess, uh, arise. So, so I just encourage people to try and get involved in even at a volunteer level. You know, the World Cup coming into France next year, you know, we will have a huge number of volunteers involved in that and they won't all necessarily be, be French national volunteers. So there might be an opportunity there to volunteer, you know, come and be part of that programme just getting experience, as hard as it might sound, getting experience is, is really important because I guess, as I said as well, I came out of university with a degree, but I also had that work experience that differentiated me from possibly other you know, people I was competing against for the jobs. So, yep, that's, I guess, where, where I would advise. Difficult to say exactly what skills, but certainly in my role, as I said, the communication and the relationship management skills being organised I guess the project management side is another space that we work in heavily and managing this project from four years out can be quite complicated. So having some project management skills are important. Yeah, having some confidence, be confident in your own ability, be optimistic that opportunities are out there. Try if you can to stay positive and keep working towards getting your opportunity because they will eventually come up. That's certainly what I've found. Um, Ross, really appreciate this, uh, especially the last version. This is the question I'm asking everyone on the podcast because, you know, and I think it's valuable to the listeners 
I think the skill set or the, you know, what is really important in a person, you know, for this industry, the ones that are, uh, that all the guests are saying, you know, it's really important. I think that one is definitely, you know, valuable to have in order to get into the industry. And there's always from all of them, there's always one or two, which everyone on the podcast is saying, and I appreciate sharing that with me and with the listeners. Absolute pleasure. And just to say, I think it's worth listening to people's stories. You know, I'm always interested find out how somebody got involved and where they went, you know, and that's probably more valuable than having somebody say what the kind of key skills are. It's understanding how did you get there and that's all. So there are opportunities, you know, I find that, that quite valuable. Absolutely. And you shared the fact that you're almost done with your MBA and where you aspire to, you know, in the future, getting, you know, in the more business aspect of the sport and getting involved in the club environment, which makes sense because that, for the listeners, World Rugby is a non-profit organization, whereas the club environment usually operates to make as much profit as possible. So, you know, all these things combining together, all the knowledge, all the experience combining together makes these things happening. So, Ross, any new things you've done lately during the pandemic? Maybe any books besides your family, of course? (laughs) Books, the series, you mentioned one movie before, but any, you know, books, series, podcasts that you want to share with the audience? Um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I mentioned Sunderland Till I Die was a series I was watching on Netflix, which is, yeah, I guess worth worth watching. Just, again, getting a, a, an insight into how, you know, a sports club, a football club operates and runs and the pressures of that environment. That was quite interesting. I love watching sports documentaries. Now, I think if you haven't seen The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, you know, make sure you get onto that. It was fantastic. Whether it's series or podcasts or, or books, I love autobiographies. Just finished Eddie Jones's autobiography, which I'd, I'd recommend. That's really insightful. His journey from playing to coaching. And yeah, he's a, a very interesting character indeed, Eddie. Another book I'm reading actually at the moment is called Atomic Habits, which is by James Cooper, which is quite interesting. You may have I actually saw, I think I saw on LinkedIn, somebody had recommended it. So I ordered it and yeah, I started reading that. It's just really interesting about how people form habits and how you might try and start a habit or you want to get rid of a bad habit. I remember because we're recording this on July 15th and in two days on Friday, the episode with a director of business analytics from Kansas City Chief is going to go live. And he's reading one book a month, I think, or a a week and he's posting like the reviews of the book oh, and wow. this was the latest book that he read so this is where the name yeah <laughs> there you go there you go there you go and I, I you know i don't know where i saw it but i saw it pop up somewhere either on linkedin or it might come up on one of the podcasts i'm listening to maybe i liked it and this is how the algorithm on social media is crazy <laughs> maybe i liked it and you saw that i liked it and it appears on uh, very possible very positive. Yeah. I'm always kind of, I guess, looking to see what people are recommending. And I'm not a huge reader. That's one one habit that I would like to improve, which is why I'm reading a book on how to improve my habits. Um, but yeah, reading, you know, being able to stop working or stop, you know, being on social media or devices and actually, you know, pick up a book in my free time. Um, that's something I'm working on and trying to get get into a bit more reading, definitely. And podcasts, I think the one podcast that I really enjoy at the moment is um, Are You Not Entertained? The sports, okay. sports podcast, sports business podcast. That's um, it's Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell and many other guests that are part of that. And that's very much looking at the business of sport. And yeah, I find that, find that very interesting. It's very insightful and eye-opening. That's a, that's a space that, as I said, I'm quite interested in working towards. And yeah, it's very interesting at the moment hearing what the global pandemic or their view 
or that the global pandemic is going to have to the sports industry because as we can see it's having a significant impact on our industry um i've got lots of friends and, and colleagues who are struggling at the moment and you know whether you're freelance or, or part-time working or or you've just been made redundant it's a real challenge at the moment so what does the sports industry look like in the you know in the recovery of the pandemic and what will it look like what will the new normal look like afterwards it's quite an interesting podcast it's good to be I have a good point in, uh, in the context of the pandemic with a lot of people having more free time. And I told this before the call to Ross, it's just doing something for your own benefit during this time. And it's, you know, developing some of your skills or, you know, opening this kind of podcast, you know, to connect with people and share their stories. And this is how I personally, I learn a lot. So, you know, on, a, on any given day, I wouldn't get that much insight, but now you sharing that with me and by posting this podcast, others will get value as well out of it. And uh, I appreciate that process a lot. Let's get into the reactions game. Words, just let me know your first thing that comes to your mind when I when I say something. Okay. Again? All right. Rugby World Cup 2023. Exciting. All Blacks. Legendary. World Rugby. Leaders. Yokohama Stadium. Unique. And last but not least, Glasgow Warriors. Passion. Beautiful. You heard it, guys. Thanks a lot, Ross, for uh, coming onto the podcast. If anyone wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do it? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. So if anybody wants to connect with me on LinkedIn, they can get me there. I can share details that I'm sure you can put on. Yeah, I'll put them in the nine episode notes for sure. On the notes, yeah, no problem. So that's probably the best place to get me. I'm also on Twitter, but that's more more retweets than actually sharing my own views, I must admit. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, yeah, if anybody wants to get in touch, then they can certainly reach me there. Ross, thanks again a lot and um, wish you all the best. Stay safe during this pandemic. Take care of your family as well. And uh, again, congrats on all your achievements on your new role change slash, you know, change, upgrade, call it any way you want, or I don't know what, how you call it. But again, thanks for taking the time. I understand it's really tough times. And on behalf of myself and all the listeners out there, thank you, thank you, thank you. And looking forward to actually meeting you in person and, you know, having a beer and uh, enjoy maybe a rugby game or something. Yeah, I look forward to that, Eugene. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And well done to you for doing this podcast. You know, you're, you're an example of somebody that's thinking outside the box. And, and as you said, using your free time to try and, you know, help yourself and help others in, in this industry. So you know, glad I was able to contribute and hope it was of interest for some people. Sounds good. Take care, Ross. You too, Eugene. Take care. That was it for this two-part conversation with Ross. Don't forget to send your top three episodes you enjoyed the most so far. Feel free to connect with Ross on all social platforms. And for now, just stay safe and healthy. And I'll see you in the next one. Peace.